Hey everyone, this is Andre and I'm here with Michael. And on today's episode, we will continue our discussion through the book of 2 Corinthians. So I hope you guys enjoy our talk through 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Hey guys, what's up? This is Michael. I have two interesting things to say. Well, they're interesting to me. I don't know how interesting they are to Andre. But the first thing is that uh, this is releasing on Monday. We're recording actually just the day before. And so tomorrow and Sunday, or tomorrow and Tuesday, I'm in the playoffs for intramural softball, which is a blast, including Tuesday is the semis for uh, a guy's team that I'm on. And then also today, more tragically, or happy to celebrate in a sense, on May 2nd, which is Sunday today, uh, it is uh, the day that Athanasius died in 373 AD. And Athanasius is the church history figure we talked about uh, a long time ago. Uh, on the podcast uh, as he battled for a proper view of Jesus's divinity and humanity and the Trinity and everything like that with the Nicene Creed. And so, intramural softball and Athanasius in one introduction. So, that's all I got. More interesting, interestingly, more interestingly, yeah, there we go. More <laughs> interestingly, uh, this is the first time we've recorded on a Sunday in a while. This whole season, we've kind of stuck yep, to our, for sure. our Friday uh mid-afternoon kind of recording times but a while back when we were both in town we used to record a lot on Sundays actually and today is actually the first time that we are recording on a Sunday which is actually like really quite nice just you know going to church um thinking about uh, you know what's being taught there and um you know kind of talking about that before we get to record so I think that was that's it's been uh it's been nice to, to be able to do that again um, but with, you know, the busy schedules we got finishing up the semester, it kind of had to be done this time. But I think it was really cool. And um, at least at my church, we talked a bit about Paul. And now we're going to get to dive into that a little bit more as well, which is going to be awesome. Yeah, we talked about Paul as well. First uh, Timothy 3. And uh, those letters, Timothy, are some of his last uh, things before he before he died. And so really good letter there. So what's uh, what's been going on with you? Any interesting conversation with friends or anything like that? Oh yeah, pretty pretty interesting. Actually, may as well jump into to the text with First Corinthians chapter five. I actually had a really interesting conversation with a friend, um, kind of around the first few verses. So if you want to just go ahead and jump right in, um, you want to explain the first few verses. Let's start and, us off, and uh, then I can give my interesting story, I guess. Yeah, just yeah, go for it. Yeah, dude, let me uh, go ahead and jump right in. So looking at the uh, first few verses here. Um, Let's just look at, you know, the first uh, four or five. Uh, we see Paul's talking about um, this earthly home or an earthly tent and how it's it's being destroyed, you know, kind of following the same themes we've been talking about um, with death and some of the questions that uh, were, were being asked around that subject that Paul was addressing and how, you know, this idea that um, as a commentary that I was reading out of, and I think that Michael was as well this week, um, how there's not this like feeling of um, homelessness Upon upon dying, um, Paul had this understanding that you know Christ's uh, return wouldn't occur during his life during his lifetime, and you know we've seen this theme of like you know what happens um, if you um, die before uh, Christ's uh, second coming uh, throughout a lot of Paul's letters. Um, he's kind of addressing a bit of that here, where he's you know where he says that there's not this state of homelessness when your earthly home is destroyed. Um, you have um, a heavenly home, a house not made with hands. Um, eternal in the heavens um, in verse one. Um, and Paul kind of goes into, and he's talking about how, you know, we have this dwelling for this uh, heavenly um, uh, home that, you know, that we're waiting for, that Paul is waiting for. 
Um, he's kind of talking about this in the midst of his sufferings, but the interesting conversation that I had with a friend uh, actually happened today, and we were kind of talking about how this kind of fits in with the whole uh, idea of um, purgatory. Um, if you guys aren't familiar with Andre's, that, Andre's a big fan. Andre's a big fan of purgatory. I don't know if I'm a big fan. I, I have. I will say I've been a fan of, <laughs> of you know discussing, kind of investigating some of these ideas um, with the Catholic Church and um, Orthodox Church. We I did have a conversation with a friend though that was really interesting about this and, and how some of the um, ideas that you know the Catholic Church um, ascribes to how you know sometimes especially in, in other countries not in the U.S. but um, in potentially like third world countries um, where uh, you know the, the Catholic faith um, or the Catholic Church potentially uh, doesn't have as much of an emphasis on uh, you know potentially you know reading the Bible outside of church and, and other things along those lines but we were kind of having this conversation of you know how do you reconcile a passage like this to the idea of purgatory and it was really interesting just like seeing how what, what Paul's talking about here and, and how we're, we're waiting and, and even longing for um, this uh, dwelling that we have and that's being prepared for us in heaven um, and, and how it seems like this immediate thing and how there's, you know, as Michael put it, not really a necessity for purgatory when we look at it in light of um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're talking about here. And Michael's going to even touch on that even more uh, in the second half that we have. Oh, you talk. bet. Yeah. And so, uh, but thinking about those two things, and, and we even had a discussion about, um, you know, when Jesus is talking to uh, the thief on the cross, and, and you know, he, and uh, the thief is, you know, he's saying, Jesus, remember me, and, you know, Jesus also gives, like, this immediate answer that, um, you know, there's, like, this immediate uh, sense of, of being reunited in heaven, right? And so that was a really interesting conversation, and in, in how, you know, a lot of these things can, you can, you know, we can still engage in these conversations about um, what, what was going on. Um, when Paul was writing up until now. That's really good. I actually want to throw some cards on the table or some some uh, thoughts on the table about purgatory just so we're not walking through the end of the chapter later and we're just going back to that. So I think, I, like what Andre said, I mean, the Protestant view, I mean, there is no need for purgatory in light of like what Jesus says there or like Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, through Jesus's blood. Or Isaiah, our, our, uh, we're washed white as snow, um, despite our sins being like scarlet. And so, I mean, if we believe that Jesus's blood has washed us clean and we believe like second Corinthians five seventeen says, which we'll get to later, that we are a new creation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Then there's no need for that sort of thing because we've already been washed. There's no need for another space of cleansing. That's basically to take away from what Christ's blood actually, um, brings to brings to the table what it actually does for us it's actually efficient for cleansing us and there's no there's no need for anything else and so that's all i would say about that um not a fan of purgatory in fact one of the biggest supporting texts for purgatory is in first uh i think it's in first but it's in one of the the two uh first and second maccabees which again for uh protestants is not part of the inerrant scripture so that's really good and kind of just like if we're just going to, you know, continue on and move pretty quickly through this first part. But uh, Paul then talks about how uh, in verse two, for in this tent we groan. So he's talking about this earthly home we have now, how, you know, this is not where we want to be. We want to be, um, you know, obviously we want to be in, in heaven with Jesus. And, you know, but, you know, he's kind of talking about now some of the responsibilities we have, um, you know, being here in this earthly home or, you know, in our earthly bodies, um, 
you know, as being stewards of, of um, the gifts, uh, you know, the body that um, God has given us. And, and you know, what is our purpose? You know, while we would rather um, not not be in this state of groaning, you know, you know, what it, what, what does that mean uh, for us? And especially in in uh, in verse five, where, you know, Paul's talking about how, you know, we have the spirit um, and, you know, how that's um you know, talking about like the preparation for, you know, what it is that we need to do and, and, and moving into verses six and beyond. Yeah. Let me share one thing before we get into verse six. Uh, so actually contrary to what Andre said, I actually spent time with a completely different commentary today than, well, I spent time with one usual and then one that I, 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 I love John Calvin. I read a lot of John Calvin, but I don't spend a lot of time in his commentaries typically. And if you're interested, they're on available online for free, but uh, I did read a bit about what he had to say on uh, verse 3, where it says, If indeed by putting it on, uh, so this tent, then we may not be found naked. And he's, he basically says that verse 3 teaches that Paul is restricting this teaching to believers, saying that uh, the clothing contrasts with uh, unbelievers who have a, quote, disgraceful nakedness and, quote, are not clothed with a glorious body. And instead, Calvin says, believers are clothed with Christ and adorned in his image and receive the glorious robe of immortality. And I just love that language, and I think Calvin uh, takes the text and handles it very well. So those are just some quotes from Calvin, a little bit of church history, already rolled with Athanasius. Now I'm flipping over to the, from the 4th to the 16th century, but uh, there's some Calvin on the first little bit. But uh, just moving forward, uh, what do you see in verses 6 through 10 that you'd want us to look at, talk about, think about? Yeah, man. So looking in, in, into uh, verse six and and uh, through to verse ten, um, you know, I think that you know, I think that what stuck out to me the most, um, at least, you kind of you know, thinking back to you know what I was what I was saying right before, um, and you know, kind of like where does that leave us now? And you know, despite uh, having you know this 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 tent now and and this earthly home and how you know that makes us groan, but in verse nine it says, so whether we are at home or away, uh, we make it our aim to please him, um, the Lord. Um, so kind of like saying that, you know, no matter if, you know, we're, uh, in heaven or here on our, in our earthly bodies, you know, our, our main purpose is to, is to please, um, is to please God. And, you know, Paul goes into verse 10 saying, you know, we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So each one may receive, uh, what is due and what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So here, I think an important distinction to make before I'll, I'll let you, you know, give any comments you have is that, you know, Paul is, isn't talking about um, his salvation, right? You know, Paul, um, you know, he, he knows that, you know, his, his salvation is not what is at stake here um, when he's talking about, you know, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ um, and in this aim to play, to please God. You know, he's really saying, you know, an account of all the things that, he, that he's done with, um, you know, the gifts that God has given him, you know, Paul, an apostle, um, in the book of Acts, we see like all of his, his missionary journeys, you know, there's all of the letters that we have um, in front of us. And, you know, Paul knows that he's going to give an account of, you know, what did, what did he do with his apostleship, right? Like um, how, you know, he's, Paul is more concerned with making sure that he's a good steward of, of these gifts and of the responsibilities that, you know, God has, has given him and, and, and allowed him, um, you know, the opportunity to, um, you know, help and shape and, and, and pastor and shepherd over people. Um, but he's not, he's not t- talking about uh, salvation per se, while, you know, it is true that um, all will appear uh, 
before the judgment seat of Christ. But, you know, I just want to make that uh, distinction before handing it back over to you. Have you seen The Book of Eli? It's a movie. Uh, no, I haven't. Okay, well, uh, it's a very interesting movie, and it's about um, the Bible. But uh, I don't know if anybody has seen it. I watched it a while back, so I don't feel like... I don't want to give it away because it's very obvious. But for uh, the main character, verse 7 is key, uh, walking by faith and not by sight. And I think it's even quoted in the movie. But the fact that you haven't seen it, and I don't know if the listeners have seen it, I don't want to give it away, but... Uh, it, it's uh, pretty key in the movie, but anyways, moving on, I really like verse 10, or I think, I think you did a good job of talking about it. And I kind of, as I was taking notes just personally and trying to like think through it, repent, pray, uh, think about how I might teach or explain this. Uh, I came up with only like three questions just based on the judgment seat. If we're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, number one would be, um, what we don't do for the Lord is going to burn in the fire. That's what Paul says in first Corinthians. And so would we rather please the Lord or please others kind of goes with Galatians one. Paul says that he's not seeking the approval of man. Uh, the question two would be if it's at this judgment seat of Christ that we are declared innocent due to his blood. And so when we think of the judgment seat, how does that positively impact our thinking? Because we realize that that's where we see God's mercy shine forth, uh, for the people, for us who have turned to Christ. And then third, what are we doing? And this is going to be a topic of discussion later with the ministry of reconciliation, but what are we doing to get other people to be on the quote, right side of history, uh, knowing that the judgment seat is coming. And so I think those are just some, uh, you really talk through it well in terms of how Paul sees it in light of his salvation, but I just wanted to throw out some questions, maybe how people can apply it or think through it or wrestle with the text. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, there's like, just like this little snippet in, uh, in my Bible, the, it's like the, the Passion City Church Bible that has like some, um, it's called the Jesus Bible, but it has like a bunch of like little stuff on the, on the sides and, and written by people such as, you know, Louie or... John Piper or whoever. And, you know, this one is kind of talking about that same thing, but, you know, there's like this quote here, the judgment seat provides opportunity for Christ to evaluate the faithfulness of each believer. Uh, those who invest in the kingdom of God will receive rewards from from Christ, while believers who wasted their opportunities will suffer loss. And um, quotes there, uh, um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 15 well, I, I just think that that's like super interesting and, and you know, this part about the ministry of reconciliation is kind of like the practical application of that. So kind of like moving from, you know, more, more so it kind of goes a little bit more in depth with each, like moving through each like paragraph here. And I think like, kind of like we're going to get into like, kind of, you know, well, what does this mean? How do, how do you practically apply this? Um, and, you know, kind of how do you avoid, um, no, how do you avoid wasting your opportunities and, and not living in, in faithfulness, right? So, Yeah, that's good. And so faithfulness, I mean, as we are faithful to the Lord, we grow in wisdom. And so how do we grow in wisdom? Well, Proverbs 1, 7 tells us that the big... Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so the fear of the Lord is not also the, is not only the beginning of wisdom, but it's the motivation um, for persuading others with the gospel, which is what verse eleven is all about. So the fear of the Lord drives Paul, drives his team, we drives the church to persuade others, and so this is kind of interesting because evangelism, in our view, some people we sometimes end up with this warped view of it's just like talking about God. Well, no, evangelism and actually trying to reconcile people to the Lord, even though the Holy Spirit has to use us, has to do it, 
is like it's actually a work of persuasion like we're actually like not fighting actually but we're fighting for the gospel to move into that person's life and so i think that's really interesting and how the judgment of christ and how the fear of the lord actually spurn paul on like those are unpopular ideas today those are healthy things for believers to think about and so this fear of the lord actually compels paul to to keep going and I mean, I, I really like that. And, and maybe just to like dig a little bit deeper into that, um, kind of around this, you know, you said Paul and, and, and the fear of the Lord and, and, you know, kind of extrapolating a little bit, um, you know, the judgment seat is really what, what Paul is referring to here and, and kind of where this fear is coming from. What do you think the, um, aside maybe from getting, I mean, if you want to get into verse 11 and, and beyond, but kind of what would you say about, um, you know, where kind of this fear is coming? Like, what is Paul uh, fearing here? Um and about the judgment seat specifically, right? Yeah, I think that's good. So I think I think there's a there's an unhealthy fear that says, like, I can just be destroyed by the Lord, which is true, but the Christian fear has to be in light of the gospel. So the the Christian fear is a reverential awe. I think as um, I think as Garland put it in his commentary, but it's it's a it's an awe or a reverence towards God. And so we know that God's wrath could be poured out on us, and instead it's poured out on Jesus at the cross, which is infinitely good news. And so I think it's an, it's an awe of God. Hebrew, at the end of Hebrews 12, it tells us that God is a consuming fire. And so uh, we are standing before a completely holy, a completely uh, divine and righteous being who is God, but it's an, it's an awe. And so it doesn't actually move us away from God. A proper fear of God moves us, moves us towards him. And so I do think it's in light of the judgment seat, but the reason it's a proper fear that's rooted in something that drives us towards the Lord is because at the judgment seat, we're declared innocent because of Jesus's death and resurrection. That's really good. And I think that another uh, potential component here is, um, you know, Paul, um, you know, knowing of, of the wrath of, of God, you know, he doesn't, you know, he, he wants as many people to be saved as possible, right? And he talks a little bit, you know, how, how Michael said, to persuade others. And looking kind of throughout this um, this section, you know, we know that, you know, he is, um, you know, make like making, taking like direct steps to persuade others to, to spread the gospel, to do all these things. He talks a little about how he's not boasting um, and that, you know, those who boast, um, you know, you know, it's not about the outward appearance, uh, but what's in the heart. Um, in verse uh, 12. So we know that, you know, Paul's coming from this place, as he says, um, of the fear of the Lord. Um, he, you know, is, is uh, going about and, and, you know, the works that he's doing, um, you know, he's, uh, you know, doing that um, for those purposes. And he's kind of getting back to this, like, you know, don't, don't boast. And those who are boasting, you know, they're not doing this for the right purposes, kind of getting back a little bit to some of the ideas we've talked about before with some of the newcomers and along those things, I don't think we're really going to get into that too much in this episode. Um, but getting to verse 14, what I really want to talk about, um, and, and 15, um, and he died for all he, Jesus, uh, that those who might, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Um, and this kind of gets to like the deeper purpose behind, behind all of it, behind what Paul is, is kind of talking about in this, in this whole section um, and in verse 14, where he says the love of Christ controls us, um, and, and kind of says how, how this all kind of works together that, um, you know, in Christ, we too have died that, you know, as he was raised, we might also, um, partake in, in that righteousness, um, and, and be right with God. Right. And that's kind of, kind of his whole mission 
is in light of that, that's why he, he goes and, and, and persuades others. That's why, you know, he had this, you know, deep desire to, to write all these letters and, and, and go on all these missionary journeys and all that. And seeing that I think is super inspirational for us today and how we view evangelism and something that definitely, you know, Michael and I have, have talked about with, you know, us two and, and other um, buddies of ours as well, and how, the, you know, kind of this plays, plays a, um, a part today and, and kind of how we view evangelism. Yeah, I just want to go back to, uh, yeah, evangelism is, I think, a big part of this passage that's overlooked. But before that, I like how you, you went to verse 14, and the verse 14 begins, for the love of Christ controls us. And that reminded me, uh, just, just recently, I, uh, through our church here in Norman, uh, we did, or we attended virtually David Platt's secret church through his organization Radical, and we have this this booklet from it. Yeah, I kind, and, uh, I kind of thought you'd, defined, uh, you'd bring that up in this in this episode. <laughs> oh, I could bring it. I could I could be pulling it in a lot more than I will. But he uh, on page ninety one, which by the way just tells you how much we got through in this one night. But uh, David Platt or his team, they define a disciple, and it says. To be a disciple of Jesus is to let his ultimate purpose in the world dictate everything you think, desire, and do. And so we had talked earlier about how God's ultimate purpose in the world is to reconcile peoples of all nations to himself for his glory. And so the to be a disciple of Jesus is to let that purpose dictate everything you do. So it's just like Paul saying, it's controlling everything you do. The love of Christ controls him. Like it, it's not just that it compels him forward. It's that it restrains him from acting in ways that are selfish or in contrast to what God's will is. And it drives him forward in the sense of, um, every decision he makes is based on God's ultimate purpose in the world. You think about what Paul's doing in Corinth, trying to reconcile people to himself and ultimately to God. And the same thing here, uh, the love of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus is dictates everything a disciple does. And so verses 14 and 15 are really like a, not a mission statement, but like a, just like a life thing that should be true of every follower of Jesus, that Jesus died for us, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Jesus, who for our sake, he died and he was raised. And so this is like our statement of life right here. Yeah. Yeah, man, that's really good. And, and now, you know, if you don't mind, I think we should, you know, jump into verse 16 and, and to the end, just because there's so much in here that I know we both want to talk about. And uh, just so we don't go, go super long here, but you know, kind of, uh, I guess we can, we can kind of, uh, um, get into this uh, verse by verse potentially, but um, uh, starting um, in verse 16, Paul makes these statements about, you know, how people are thinking about Christ. Um, and we can get go through this really quickly. And I don't know how in depth you want to go to what's going on here. But basically, you know, he's saying that while um, they once regarded to, to Christ according to the flesh, so, you know, Jesus um, on earth, uh, a lot of the people, um, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think anyone in, in Corinth would have like actually physically seen Christ, but people would have heard about him. They would have known that, you know, he was like a physical person. You know, we can think about in the gospels when I think it was whenever they were like in, in Jesus's own town. Um, I think we might've even talked about this in Mark, but when they say, you know, I don't know if it was Mark, but um, like, is that not, um, you know, Joseph's son or whatever? Um, is that not like, you know, Jesus, uh, the carpenter or the carpenter's son? And, you know, he's saying like, you know, you guys heard about him, you saw him, you know, all that, but now, you know, we don't regard him, um, according to the flesh any longer, um, kind of speaking to, uh, you know, Jesus now in his, in his heavenly glory, you know, they're not going to regard him, um, how, how, you know, potentially they're, it's still in their minds because of how like close they are to, um, when Christ was on earth. Right. And I think that, and, you know, getting into that, um, I don't know if you have any comments on that or you want to move on to the next verse. 
Let me just throw in one thought, and you can start us off with 17. And 16, it's interesting, he talks about regarding Jesus according to the flesh, which I think kind of lines with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about how the cross is this foolishness to the world, foolishness to a uh, stumbling block to the Greeks, the Gentiles, and to the Jews. And so it's kind of like that. If you evaluate Jesus' ministry on worldly standards, well, it's not very good. Three years and he dies on a cross. Well, not very good. But if you evaluate it from the proper godly perspective, which Paul has now been illuminated with uh, in Acts chapter 9 that we talked about to begin the season, now he's regarded him in a new sense, and Jesus has made him a new creation. So that's verse 17. So why don't you uh, start talking about that for us? No, that's, that's really going to, and I'm, you know, I'm sure we could talk a whole lot more about verse uh, 16 itself, but uh, moving into verse 17, which I know is uh, going to be the, the big hitter here. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Um, all the, And moving into 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I'll let you, Michael, go first, since I know you have a lot uh, to, to say on this, and I don't want you to... <laughs> Just get the uh, second second hit on this uh, on these couple verses here. Yeah, I mean, I not that we need to read them all. I mean, it should be it is a familiar passage to a lot of people, but I mean, seventeen through twenty one is a big a unit with a lot of connected themes. So you think about seventeen. If you are in Christ, so if you are in Christ, not just if you've turned from your sin, place your trust in Jesus, then. It's not like we talk so much about Jesus in us. Well, that's like one verse in the entire New Testament. The New Testament loves to say, though, that we're in Christ. We participate in Jesus. And so if we're in Christ, we're a new creation. What this chapter or what Paul does excellently here in these last few verses is tell us how that happens. So in verse 17, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. So what's true of the Christian? They're a new creation. In verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So the people who are in Christ are the ones that are reconciled to God. But how he doesn't but he doesn't say how that actually happens until verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So Jesus not just represented us, um, but actually subs- was the substitutionary atonement for us. And he took on our sins uh, onto himself, the God's justice, God's wrath. And so this reconciliation, this new creation occurs through this substitutionary atonement. But, and we'll, I don't want to talk for ages here. I think the key thing though, is that we are, it's, I mean, this passage is preached so much, just like if you're in Christ, you're new creation. And that's great news. Like we, that is good. That is good news that we need, but we need to know the second part. We're created for something new. We're created new. So we're called to something new. And so that is that we have this new message of reconciliation. So we're not saved for ourselves or for some privatized faith. We're saved so we can go out and make disciples of all nations so we can reconcile other people to God. And so we're saved. And then we go out and we share the gospel. We make disciples. And so that's what I would say getting into the text, but I, again, this, we could spend a lot of time. No, that's, that's really good. And you know, what I think is really interesting is that, you know, you didn't really go very far, kind of just back to, to, to verse 11 and, and talking about, um, you know, what, what this kind of implies here about the new creation, a new purpose. Um, and I think like the same can be said about another point I want to make. You don't have to go really far looking back to like verse one, where, you know, Paul's talking about, uh, how we have this, this earthly uh, tent or this earthly dwelling now, right? He's talking about like the groaning that's occurring because of that, you know, we're in like more of like the state of despair rather longing for what is to come. Um, and, and then now, you know, we see kind of, okay, that seems pretty, pretty, um, pretty gloomy, pretty um, downcast. Like, you know, we're kind of just stuck here. And we've talked about kind of, um, you know, no, like, what does that mean? But now here we see 
that, you know, once you accept Christ, you are a new creation. Um, and, you know, what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, the the pain and, and misery of everything that is this earthly dwelling as, you know, we're waiting for, for you know, what is to come, is that just goes away? And, um, you know, the answer is no. But what, what what is awesome, though, is that now what we saw in verse 14, that the love of Christ is what controls us, right? So now there is this, like, inward change um, as a new creation that occurs. And, you know, not, you know, now you have like this whole new purpose and a whole new mission and, and a, a whole new way of, of, you know, evaluating a new, you know, kind of, um, life, um, purpose or goal, uh, you know, verses 14 through 15, as Michael said, were kind of Paul's example to us of what, you know, our life, you know, mission, uh, kind of should look like. Right. And I think that's, you know, kind of how you were saying, uh, Michael with, you know, new creation, new purpose that I think, you know, that, that, you know, would be an excellent title for the, for the episode, but I think that's kind of what it's been getting at this whole time, right? Now, you know, we are to be ruled by love and, and not by, um, you know, the things of, of, of the earth and of, of our flesh, right? Yeah, real quick. Well, one number one is, I don't know, man, might attract more people if we put purgatory in the title. So we'll have to see about that one. But <laughs> <laughs> second is that uh, new creation, I, I agree. Yeah, it's this inward change, but we have to, um, it's actually Matt Chandler's book, The Explicit Gospel. He talks about the gospel on the ground and then the gospel in the air. So it's redemptive change for ourselves. And then second, but it's, the, it's part of this cosmic plan that God has for the world and all of creation and all the nations and all the all of the universe. And so the second thing is that this idea of new creation, like recreated, it doesn't, it's not like literally we become a new person and we don't struggle with anything like Andre said, but we are recreated. And so it does point forward to the day when the entire cosmos will be recreated. Revelation 21 and 22, new creation. Paul sees the, the heavenly city. He sees new heaven and new earth. He sees new Jerusalem and it's this new cosmic temple. And so what are we? Well, Paul tells us in, in uh, well, he's actually going to tell us, I think, in the next chapter. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit about being a temple. And so we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, but we're looking forward to the day when there's a cosmic temple. And so we are a foreshadowing of what's to come. There's going to be a new creation for the entire universe, and we get to participate in that as co-heirs with uh, King Jesus. And like Michael said, looking at verse 20, uh, as a new creation, you know, now it's our job. Paul says, he, you know, he implores on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, right? To, to change your ways to make this, um, you know, inward change be known outwardly, outwardly so that, uh, you know, we can be proper ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors for Christ, um, as we see in verse 20, um, that God makes his appeal through us, right? So, you know, these things, um, you know, kind of all go together. And I really like the point you made about, you know, um, you know us being reconciled to God. And, and also, um, kind of, we've kind of made some comments about how, you know, I've been studying through some of the covenants and all that, and, and this idea of like a new creation and, you know, you know, how awesome is, you know, God's grace that, you know, we didn't, we didn't need a, a um, a flood like in, in Noah's uh, time to kind of have this like kind of resetting, but now it's like this like inward resetting and it's like so much better. We have like the Holy spirit, you know, within, within us. And I don't know, for me that just kind of just like, um, just gives me like so much like excitement and so much like hope um, to, you know, just, you know, tell other, tell others about, you know, you know, what, what it is that, um, you know, this life mission or life purpose really is. And just, you know, surrounding yourself with, with people kind of um, how we've been talking on the previous episodes, um, 
the, like with aspects of community and, and all those kinds of things and, and how these how Paul's really like starting to tie all these together. That's really good. I have a well before I get something more applicable, which can be after uh, maybe you expound on something. But I actually want to throw out a suggestion. I didn't read this anywhere. Just thinking about it. Chapters 3 and 4, there's a lot of emphasis on this new covenant that's distinct from Moses' covenant. There was a lot of talk about Moses' veil, which is Exodus 34, when he uh, when he comes out from being in the Lord's presence and he's seen God's glory, and so it's shining, radiating off of his face. Well, my proposition, though, or I don't know if it's a new proposition, but it's an idea, is that this idea of the last verse, verse 21, the one who knew no sin, Jesus, it can be the sacrifice. Well, in Exodus 32, after the golden calf incident, Moses goes to the Lord and asks or says, if if you can't forgive them, like if, you, if, th- if you're going to judge them, then blot me out of life instead. Blot me out of the book. Like, let me be the atonement for their sin. Let me die in their place. He offers himself as, as a, like, in substitution for them, as a substitute. And God rejects that. Well, part of the reason he rejects that is because Moses is imperfect himself. Moses is a sinner, so he can't bear the weight of God's wrath and justice for the people. Well, now Christ is the one who knew no sin, so he can actually take on God's just wrath on our behalf so that we can be reconciled to God. So what Moses was unable to do, Jesus, as this new covenant um uh, this new covenant uh, inaugurator, this new covenant mediator is able to actually do on our behalf. And so Moses points forward to Jesus, but Jesus does what Moses cannot do. And I think like the most interesting part is that uh, kind of here, like you said, I mean, you said you, you said it yourself, you didn't like read this anywhere or anything, but you know, the idea or thought process, we, we definitely think that, um, you know, those in Corinth probably could have made this, this connection um, themselves um, kind of the differences between what Paul is saying about Christ and what they know to be um, true about about Moses, what they've you know been been told uh, throughout their lives about about Moses, and how you know Paul's really getting back to Moses a lot, like throughout all of the chapters we've kind of um, gone into to, uh, together throughout this whole season, and you know and here like you know the the biggest distinction, the most important distinction uh, to us is that now um, that we can become the righteousness of God through Christ. Um, and I think that, um, kind of the key component that the people and the newcomers and all of them were kind of missing of why, uh, this new covenant is so much better kind of lies right in this. Um, and that now they have access, um, in a way that that wasn't possible before. And Paul's kind of trying to, you know, like shine some light on that and, and, and kind of, you know, explain, um, you know, that key difference and why that's so important and why that, uh, so necessary. That's so good. That's so good. And so, uh, just thinking about, uh, as we wrap up right here, just like one final push as like, here's how you're going to take this into the week or today is like, personally for me, something I've been working on is sharing the gospel at the gym. Well, we like to think that, or our culture has influenced us to think like, we don't want to offend anyone or like push people towards a decision. It sounds too pushy for us. Well, we need to we need to do things with love, but we need to think about what the text says. Verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So if you have a pen or if you're not driving, I mean, think about like opening your Bible and we probably have verse 17 underlined. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. But look at the word, the word choice. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Verse 11. Then verse 20, uh, it says we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal. So there's an appeal. Okay. And then we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So there's 
So like Paul's idea of pushing people towards to be closer to the Lord, Christian or not, is persuade, appeal, implore. And so we need to not just talk about Jesus, but uh, try to persuade people about Jesus. Try to invite them into the gospel. Actually, give an invitation. And so that's what I would close with. Um, go and share the gospel this week and persuade people, appeal to them on behalf of the gospel, implore them to follow Jesus and how they can have a new creation life. That's really good, man. And I hope everyone enjoyed this episode uh, as we dove into Second Corinthians chapter 5 and see you guys back next week. Amen.